A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on October 28th, 2020. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and our co-host and guest today is Lonnie Coombs, who is a friend of the show and also is a former prosecutor in the L.A. District Attorney's Office, also a legal commentator. Welcome back, Lonnie. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Anna? I'm well. I'm so happy that you're with us for this special episode because your expertise is what I am so hungry for because this case doesn't make any sense to me just legally, morally, of course not, but legally, I I can't figure this one out. So I'm really looking forward to your comments on this. So we want to let everybody know that this is a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. Today's show will be focused entirely on one case, one case that you, our audience, felt so strongly about. In fact, you were so outraged about this case that you commented more on this than any other case. We got thousands of comments about this. And the best part is that this chorus of outrage, not only yours, but in the community where this happened, has really made things change, if you can believe it. We're just a little bit closer to justice, as I like to say, although it's partial justice. And again, because of the chorus of outrage. Okay, so we're talking about this horrendous case, which we have an update on, and it involves the rape of a 12-year-old Amish girl by her brothers in Missouri. This is just incredible, Lonnie. It is, it is just, it is frightening. It is horrendous. It is so sad. It is tragic. And, and so many victims. So we covered this case, Lonnie, four weeks ago on October 2nd. And that, that episode, we reported that the two rapist brothers had gotten this sweetheart deal where literally they walked away without one day, one day of prison time. And I want to remind everyone that when they raped this girl, she was 12, but she ended up getting pregnant and she had a baby when she was 13. And there were a total of four brothers that were involved in the sexual assault, two minors who have not been charged, and then the two older brothers. I mean, I, I, I don't know what to say about this, Lonnie. Well, and horrific as it is that she actually ended up getting pregnant, honestly, we might never have known about it if she hadn't gotten pregnant. If she hadn't gone to the doctor and the doctor realized that she was pregnant and asked her, because she's 12 years old, who have you been having sex with? What's going on here? That's how this came to light. And the doctor is the one who ended up calling the police. If she didn't have that baby in her tummy, who knows what would have happened to her? Who knows if this would have been continuing on for the rest of her life? We just don't know. And the fact that she was in a home where four brothers were all abusing her. Uh, it's like, what is going on in this home? Where are the parents? We don't even know who the father is because all four of them were having sex with her. Yeah, it, it, it's mind boggling. And it's just, it, it makes you just want to pull this little girl into your arms and just say, you know, that's not what life is supposed to be and protect her and save her. And yet clearly that hasn't happened, but no, because she was pregnant, 
there was no denying it, right? I mean, nobody could say, oh no, she's just making it up. She's pregnant. She is, has a baby now. Uh, and so once it came to trying to figure out who it was and talking to the brothers, you know, they just said, yeah, we're the ones that were doing it. We've all been having sex with her. Yes, the brothers did not deny it when the police came knocking. They admitted that they called it having sex. I I'm sorry, I, I have to call this sexual assault or rape because a 12-year-old cannot consent. It doesn't work that way. A 12-year-old has no consent. I don't care whether you're Amish or you're not. It doesn't right. matter. No matter so, what's going on in that home that may make it look like it's okay, it's not. That was clearly rape of this little girl over and over again. They admitted, the two brothers admitted that it happened at least six times. Each. At least. Each. Each of those brothers, six times. And who knows, that's how many they confessed to, right? We don't know how many other times. And then what about the other two brothers who we don't even know how old they were, but how many times were they raping her? It, the numbers boggle your mind. It really does. It really does. And had there not been that hotline, like you said, that girl would never gotten any help. And, and that's going to be part of our conversation today is, has she received any help? Because she was placed back in the home. She was not removed. The baby was not removed. So if, if, if this were, Lonnie, if this were any other family, and especially a family of color, are yeah. you going to tell me that the results would have been the same, that the, that the two assailants walk? And that the girl goes home with her baby to the same parents that let this happen? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. There's so much focus on what's happening to the rapist. What's happening to the victim, right? What happened to the victim here? They just put her right back in the same situation. Who was, who was looking out for her? Who was supposed to be looking out for her? You can't, you can't rely on the family in this situation, obviously, to look out for her. Someone Abs else step in. Absolutely. And, and so as, as part of this special program, we're going to look at what happened as a result of the first episode that we did a month ago, which is a lot happened. A lot happened because um, we had a co-host who you know, Louis Bolaños, who is a former homicide detective, and now he's a private investigator, and he uses a lot of his firm's time to do a lot of pro bono work. He was so outraged by this case, and, and and the people in Missouri, in Seymour, Missouri, who were protesting because they were like, this cannot be happening. This is not justice. How is this girl being protected? Why, why aren't prosecutors coming down so much harsher on these two rapist brothers? So they've been out there protesting, and they felt like no one was hearing them, and we mentioned them, that they're out there, mm -hmm. that there are people who think this is not okay. And so- they emailed me. They reached out through True Crime Daily. Lewis has gotten involved. So much has happened that we're going to update all of this. We're going to have Lewis back on in a little bit. We're going to have who I call the, um, you know, the agitator in chief there in Seymour, who's been rallying the troops uh, on, as well as we're going to have two women who left the Amish community because they too were victims of this type of sexual abuse. It's horrific. So let's. Let's do a little bit deeper dive into the details of the case, the criminal case. And then we're going to bring everybody on and we're going to go through this and figure out what happened when. So two Amish brothers in Seymour, Missouri, were arrested in June for raping their 12-year-old sister. Petey Schwartz, 18. Aaron Schwartz, 22. Each was charged with six counts of rape and one charge of incest. Now, 
what ends up happening is, you know, they admit to it, right? Okay, they're going, they're headed to trial. They're headed to trial. And this is the part that's amazing. So September 8th, they're supposed to go into trial. But before then, they reach a plea agreement. Okay, plea agreements I know happen all the time. But this one, Lonnie, I want you to explain to me what could have possibly been in the minds of people to think this was okay. The six charges of rape were dropped to two counts of molestation, a suspended sentence of 15 years, meaning they were never going to go to prison, and they got five years probation, in addition to that, to the conditions of this plea deal. They were forbidden from having any contact with their little sister who they raped, the victim here. Absolutely no contact. And they had to register as sex offenders, and then they had to write a letter of apology to Seymour's Amish community about what they had done, plus 100 hours of community service. Of course the brothers took this deal. It was a sweetheart deal. Can you figure this out, Lonnie? Okay, so when a deal is cut like this, you have all of this time hanging over their heads, right? They put 15 years, and it wasn't like it was going to go away. It was suspended. So essentially what they say is, look, this big, huge hammer can come down on you if you step out of line one bit. So we're putting 15 years of prison over your head. And if you don't follow every single probation condition that we lay out for you, you're going to prison for 15 years. There's no ifs, ands, or buts at that point. There's no negotiating. There's no pleading. There's no nothing. You're going to go to prison for 15 years. At least this is the way if I set up a deal like this, I would do it. I wouldn't do it in this case. But there were cases where if you felt like the person deserved a second chance, you would set it up like this so that they knew if they stepped out of line even a little bit, boom, they're gone, right? So apparently that's what this prosecutor was thinking because he said that. He went out to the media and when people were upset, he said, look, they know that if they violate any terms of these conditions, that they're going to go to prison right away. And that's what's going to happen to them for 15 years. And it's going to be hard, he said, for them to follow these conditions. He seemed more concerned about, you know, that they do their community service or that they do their sexual offender training that they had to go to. Um, and the fact that the letter was to the Amish people, how about a letter to the victim? Yes. Yes, Lonnie. Why are we so concerned about the community in this situation? Nobody talked about the victim in this case. And, and when they talked about the probationary conditions, it wasn't even one of the ones that was listed, at least to the media, that they were supposed to stay away from the victim. We found out about that a little bit later, right, when something comes up. So that might be what was in the prosecutor's head. And then he did talk about it. He said, look, I have in the past come down hard on other people in the Amish community. There was a situation like this where it was the father abusing the daughter, and I put, them in, I put him in prison. But he considered this to be different because these were the brothers. And he sort of alludes because he says they were not mature. He alludes that they might have issues. Okay. Lonnie, that's crazy. I don't buy that crap. Right. But here's the thing. If he did truly believe that, if that maybe they have learning issues or they're not educated and they can't read and write, whatever it is, I don't know what's going on in their situation. Then you do more work. You do risk assessment. You do a psychological examination. You do more to find out about that person to make sure that you are protecting the victim, right? Mm -hmm. Because if they do have those issues that might justify, you know, a special kind of sentence, then you also have to do the extra work to make sure 
that those conditions are worked looked after and provided for so that the victim isn't at risk to this to this situation, which did not happen in this case. So based on the prosecutor's own statements to the media, it sounds like he felt that these boys, boys, these men, uh, one, were not mature. Maybe perhaps they didn't understand what was they were really doing. I don't know. It sort of was like kind of alluded to that and that they would be eaten up in prison. Well, that's not an excuse, right? That's no. not, not to put somebody in prison. So, um, And that's their problem. I'm sorry. You commit the crime. Those are going to be the real-life consequences. Welcome to the real world. What I also don't understand about the prosecutor and I appreciate you're giving us this insight because I'm not trying to beat him up, but I really do want to challenge him and his decisions. We have a right to do that. And, and, and the question for me is, he said several things like, even though they confessed, he said, it would be very hard for me to get a harsher sentence. Do you think that's true? Harsher than probation? No, no, I don't believe that at all. I think that if this had gone to trial, um, clearly it would have been a very easy verdict. I think you've got, you've got that she's pregnant, that she had a baby and you have that they've confessed, right? So that's why they didn't want to go to trial because there's really nothing to defend. I think that a judge looking at that would say they, they need to go to prison. Maybe not for the full length of time, but they need to be punished. And then they also need to, if they need the training or they need whatever else, you know, do that too. But there also needs to be punishment so that they understand what they've done. If they didn't understand before, they're going to understand now that there are consequences to the, what they were doing. To your point that maybe they didn't understand, apparently three days after they signed this agreement and went home, they violated the probation agreement because they saw their sister, the victim who they had raped. Yeah. Three days after this. So they get hauled back into court last week. They go before the judge and they admit that they saw their sister and get this, Lonnie. They said, oh, we didn't realize we weren't supposed to see her. Yeah. Give me a freaking break. What yeah. the hell is going on here? So it's interesting. So their probation officer, you know, had a meeting with them because that's what they're supposed to do on their own probation. And they said, where are you living and who's living there? And they go, oh, well, we're living in our house and our sister's there, essentially. Right. And the probation officer's like, what are you thinking? That violates your probation. And the one brother, Aaron said, he thought that there were no restrictions. And the other brother, Petey said, the court, well, Ben, that's the prosecutor's name, by the way, Ben said he doesn't have any restrictions. So that's what we got from the court. I find that very interesting. One, that they didn't understand that they had any restrictions. And two, that one of the brothers is actually referring to the prosecutor as his first name. He's not talking about his attorney telling them what they should or shouldn't have done. They're talking about the prosecutor and they both came away with the belief or understanding that there were no restrictions on them. So forget the, I mean, one, the sentence is outrageous, but two, the fact that no one really sat down apparently with these two men and explained to them exactly what they were supposed to be doing is egregious. It's really unconscionable. And the judge agreed. The same judge who approved the sweetheart plea deal said, that's it. You two, you're going straight to prison. And they were walked out the back of that courthouse and into patrol cars, and they are behind bars right now. So it's almost as if finally there is justice. But I don't think these two were ever going to get it. 
and putting them back in the community, frankly, that put everyone at risk. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and to your point, you said at the beginning, I think a lot of it had to do with the way the community responded to this. When both the prosecutor and the judge saw, oh my goodness, look at the outrage. Look what everybody's saying and thinking about this. When they saw that chance, when they heard that there was a violation, boy, they both jumped on it right away. And they're in prison now. It's almost as if from their perspective, they've taken care of the problem. But I'm going to argue that they haven't because they're still that girl who is in this environment that we don't know that she's safe. Okay, so... Yeah, the I'm two, sorry. The two other brothers might still be there. The other ones. She was being abused by four, not just right. in prison. Yeah. Well, of course, the minor brothers are there. They're minors. Yeah. Yeah. OK, we're going to discuss more of this now with people who are there on the ground dealing with this and also with Luis Bolaños, who has now gotten involved and is advocating and assisting the group in Seymour. So before any of us had heard about this case, there were people demonstrating outside the courtroom because they were so upset. So we're going to now bring in two guests who who really have had a pivotal role in changing the course of events in Seymour. So joining us now is Luis Bolaños, who's a former homicide detective, a friend of the show, and he has his own private investigation agency, and he does a lot of pro bono work, and Luis is now officially working with all the people in Seymour on this case, which is fascinating. And that all happened from the podcast. So we're really excited that Lewis is here. Also, you're going to see two warriors <laughs> over there. And, and these are the true rock stars because you are the people who inspire me about what it is that we do and about changing things and voices being heard. You have Tiffany Hill and Mel Pleasant from the Child Advocacy Against Pedophilia, also referred to as cap. You two are like the the local activists in chief. You you got together, Tiffany and Mel, and you made these homemade signs, which we're going to show because you were kind enough to send us your videos and your photos. And you were standing out on the on the street outside the courthouse before anybody else was talking about this case. And I was so impressed by you that after our podcast aired a month ago, you all reached out to me. Tiffany, you, Lewis, and I got on the phone the very next day to talk about what we can do and how we can help you. Mel reached out on social media. First of all, how do you feel that you accomplished something and got some justice here because those two brothers are behind bars now? They are, but justice is not completely served yet. (laughs) Tell me what needs to be done. Well, in my opinion, I think there's, you know, some juvenile charges that need to be brought upon. You know, the the parents need to be investigated, much less charged. Um, You know, there's still minor children in the home. Why is that? Exactly. Mel, did you feel that your voices were being heard, that you were going to ever get justice. I I mean, I know you were all devastated when the two brothers walked and nobody else would be treated that way. Exactly. Um, it was, it was just a freak thing that if that was to happen to me, you know, DHS would have been there taking my children, you know, and not giving me a chance to speak. But when you look at the Amish case, they, it was pretty much open and shut until we came in and we were just angry 
angry for this little girl who has no justice. Did you feel that you had support there in Seymour when you first started this before the chorus around the country and the world chimed in? When we first started it, we started a small Facebook group and it kind of blew up overnight. So we noticed right then that those citizens were just as angry as we are, but they that's a town that is very involved in knowing who you are and caring who you are. And we just kind of busted that down because we don't care who knows who when there's an injustice like this. I'm going to get to Lewis in a second, but Lonnie, I want to ask you as a former prosecutor, how valuable are their voices really? You know, they may not feel like it in the moment, but it when they get so loud, does that affect things? Oh, it does. Believe me, the prosecutors and the judges, they all have ears. They all know, you know, that the public uh, has a very strong opinion like that. And I truly believe that the reason they moved so quickly on this probation violation was because of the outcry that they knew was going on uh, from the public. Lewis, you got involved right after we did that podcast. You and I are on the phone and, and, and we're like, we got to do something. We, we hadn't even met Tiffany and Mel yet. And, and, and Lewis, in typical style, dives right in. And now he has an official function working with all of you. Lewis, what have you uncovered in these few weeks since you got involved? A tsunami, a tsunami of sexual assaults toward children. It is incredible. And I, again, the voice, uh, the movement that Tiffany and Mel both started, uh, I had no idea anything like this was even possible. Being involved with other investigations where you're facing organizations like uh, Fox or Weinstein, Bill Cosby, where they're protected uh, because of of folks are worried about coming forward and speaking the truth. This puts those cases to shame. And we've seen more than our share in those type of investigations. Early on, when we first did this podcast, Anna, the only people I saw online who were addressing these issues and trying to protect Daisy was Melanie and Tiffany. They're the only ones out there that I saw that had any voice whatsoever. And it was a small one at that point. But it was big enough that it got our attention. The movement that's happened in the last two, three weeks is just phenomenal. Um, Tiffany and Mel have put me in touch with other victims, people who have lived within the Amish communities that we're talking about, who would tell you straight up, this is a past and current practice, and nothing is going to change unless the environment changes within the Amish walls and within the justice system outside the walls. It's almost accepted to the point where it feels as if these behaviors are condoned. Sounds disgusting, but that's how I feel. Oh, I, I agree with you. Now, you, you referred to someone as Daisy. For those who don't know, you all decided, Lewis and the team there in Seymour decided you, you, you wanted to give this victim a name. So, so now, and you have posters out because you've set up a hotline where people can call if they need help or they want to report something or they need to vent, whatever. 
Um, and it's, uh, we're going to put that up in the phone number, but it's a little silhouette of a girl. And you've named her Daisy because we don't know her name. She is a victim of sexual assault and she's a minor. So her identity is, is protected. Um, why'd you name her Daisy? Thank you for asking that. So <laughs> Daisy is, was a victim of a horrible sexual assault in high school uh, about eight years ago. Her story came across us, uh, our, our purview, and we jumped in to help and do everything we can to get those responsible for that assault and the ongoing bullying by her community and by the suspects uh, bring that to a halt. Her story ended up being told in a Netflix documentary called Audrey and Daisy. Um, Daisy was probably the most powerful name in this community that had a lot of national and international recognition in the circles that we fly in. Um, and every time I had a victim come forward who was on the fence of whether or not they wanted to go forward, uh, if they felt that law enforcement wasn't giving their case the attention it deserved, or they were being bullying uh, online or in person, but something that caught our attention were normally things that should happen weren't happening. She was one of my first calls and she helped bring peace and calm and other cases to closure uh, by speaking to these victims. Uh, after uh, 10 years of this battle that Daisy had, she took her life about three weeks ago. So in our role, Daisy's a very big, powerful name. So I contacted Daisy's parents, her mom and her brother, um, and to see if it was okay if we could use her name to represent this child, to humanize this child, because I found myself guilty of that, of calling her the 12-year-old victim. It, it seems sterile and cold. So we changed her name to Daisy, and, and there's a meaning behind it. Uh, and I couldn't think of, of a better choice. Yeah, and I'm sure, Lonnie, you're very familiar with that case um, because of all of the work that you do. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I do I, I want to play some clips right now that you all sent us. Um, all of the folks who you work with there in Seymour stood outside the courthouse with these uh, posters, and you all recorded messages for Daisy. We're going to play some for you now. My name is Melissa Anderson, and I am here to be the voice and to stand up for Daisy. We are here with you, and we have your back, honey. God be with you, and hopefully we'll see justice. It's Tiffany, and I am here to support Daisy. We love you, and we support you, and we are pulling for you. Hi, I'm Lisa, and I'm here to support Daisy. We got your back. Hi, I'm Pam, and I'm just here to support Daisy and give her some justice. Daisy, we love you. We're your voice, and we will get you justice, baby. I hope someday she gets a chance to hear your messages, and hopefully this message is carried to her, even though she's in a really insulated community. Now, as far as we all know, the girl is still with the family and the two minor brothers who abused her. So, the the... Former Amish victims are very active on this case from all over the country. And one of them sent a, uh, a letter to the Office of Child Advocate. Now, the Child Advocate in Missouri is the person who's supposed to, that you turn to, right, Lonnie, that, that, that is one step removed from child services if you don't feel that things are being treated properly, right? Right. Okay, so... She gave us a copy of this letter that was sent back in response. This this advocate said, not the child advocate, but the Amish activist said, what the heck's going on here? Okay. And this is the response from the Office of Child Advocate. This office acts as 
an avenue for families and others to obtain an independent and impartial review of the decisions made by Children's Services. Stand by, because now we're going to flip a table, okay? Here's what Courtney B. Davis writes. I have <laughs> concluded my review. I am in agreement with the general direction of the case and made some recommendations. Okay. <laughs> Lonnie, what does that mean? How do I interpret that legally? I, honestly, I, I don't even, I don't get this. And then, and then to add to that, uh, True Crime Daily also reached out to the Missouri Department of Social Services to ask why the young girl was not taken out of the home after the abuse, abuse was discovered. And their response was, quote, child abuse and neglect investigations are often co-investigated with local law enforcement. Information relating to specific child abuse and neglect investigations are closed and confidential under Missouri law, except for very limited circumstances. So you, you see these activists who are doing an amazing job going to all of these different agencies that are supposed to be sort of checks and balances, right? Who are supposed to step in when it looks like something's going wrong. And yet they all seem to just be deferring back to what's already happened. Oh, well, we're doing this along with law enforcement and we're just going to go along with what they do. And I have a real question for you, Lewis, looking into these cases I heard you saying it is apparent that this, uh, this behavior seems to be condoned maybe by the community, maybe by the family. But what about law enforcement? It seems like law enforcement, is it just because it's the Amish community or what's going on here from law enforcement? I can't explain it either. Any law enforcement officer I know or agency worth their salt, when it comes to children, you do the right thing. You have so many tools available to you to go there and issue justice do a thorough investigation. So by not doing that and sending them back to let the Amish punish themselves, what other culture does that? What other religion does that? Uh, we have a lot of friends who participated in through the investigation of the Catholic Church. They don't have this leniency. I can't explain it. And it, it, to go back and let them punish themselves, who does that? That's almost vigilanteism. It's, it's crazy. So I, I can't explain it. But it, there's a huge recall for, uh, to remove this prosecutor and the judge from the case. That's not going to do anything. It's a culture. You have to address the culture and somehow get education to those kids within the walls and the parents that care of what other avenues they can take other than going to their local law enforcement. To your point, Lonnie, all they're doing is teaching these kids or any victim of sexual assault, don't come forward. It's not worth it. Right. Lonnie, I have a question for you as a former prosecutor. Ordinarily, wouldn't that child be removed from the home? She was sexually assaulted without question. She became pregnant and had a baby from 12 to 13. Would she not be removed from the home? I would assume so. I mean, clearly there should be an investigation into that home. There should be reports generated about what's going on in that home. What are the parents doing? What are they teaching? Do they understand that this is wrong? And what would they be doing going forward if they had the child there still in the home? But in this case, because appears in this case, since it appears that no one is changing their mind about this behavior, this child should be taken from the home. This child, probably herself, Daisy, doesn't understand what's happening to her is wrong. She probably has been, you know, taught the same thing that this is just normal behavior. Mel and, and Tiffany, from your perspective there in the community, it, it, what is the sentiment? Should she be taken from the home, which could be very difficult for her since she's been brought up Amish? Would she have to be placed with another Amish family? What, but but the two 
minor boys who raped her are still in the home. What's yeah. happened to them? Absolutely nothing at this point. <laughs> we're we're pushing for juvenile charges. I've sent letters. Um, just over the past week, I've probably sent about 100 letters um, in regards to, you know, why is there not more being done? Yes, the Schwartz brothers went to jail. Awesome. Great. But there's still a lot more in this case, you know, that needs to go on. And at this point, it's just not going yet. Do you think now, okay, and uh, I just want to share this personal moment, um, the day of the probation hearing last week, you know, Lewis and I are here in California. It's like, have you heard anything? Have you heard anything? And then he's like, oh, you know, yes. Tiffany's there. Uh, she's she's calling now. Stand by. We got on the phone with you. You were breathless. You were I out of breath. <laughs> That, that day, that whole day, I was just dumbfounded, honestly. I, I didn't understand how we're there so up to, you know, protect the offenders. But, you know, Daisy is just suffering at home whenever her parents come back and then what, they just go through the same thing in the next six months, give her a little bit of recovery time from having her child. And then in six months, what if there's, you know, a... 18, 19 year old cousin. They, they oh. won't do it on the young ones anymore, but what about a 15 year old? Well, I, I, um, I really, I applaud how hard you guys have worked and it's not just you two. There's a right. whole bunch of people behind you. Yes. So you've set up a Facebook page. You've also set up a website for cap. We're going to link to that in um when we uh, publish our podcast obviously we're going to also link um to lewis's uh website if if you want to follow this um i want to get your closing thoughts because we're going to move on we've got yeah. two women uh who were amish who suffered terribly they went to the police one got justice ultimately the other one is trying to get justice now and we're going to hear from them in a little bit so i want to make sure we have enough time to talk with them to get the insight on the amish community so your closing thoughts, Tiffany and Mel, what's next for, for you two um, warriors? Well, we, we are not going to stop. Um, we started with the Amish case, but as Lewis said, we are uncovering so much. So we are, we've got some protests planned um, to get some people some help um, hours away from us. So they're calling us hours away. And we're just not going to be silent. We're, we're going to get justice everywhere we possibly can. Fantastic. Fantastic. I wish you all the best because we need good people in this world fighting the good fight. And it's all about, and I, I please take this, I hope you take it the right way. It's about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And that is how life yeah. has changed. I get weird right. just thinking about it. I'm so, so, so excited about you guys. I'm so glad you're on. And we did hear you. We heard your voices. We hear you loud and clear. Please, as always, you know, I'm here for you without question. Whatever we can do to help you, you know, we got to make things right. Lewis, your closing thoughts. You're involved in the investigation. I know you've got a bunch of letters and inquiries out to everybody in Missouri. <laughs> Every day, Lewis is sending me like 10 texts. You're not going to believe who I just talked to. You're not going <laughs> to... <laughs> What's next for you on this case? Well, uh, two two things. First, I just uh, just directly to uh, Tiffany and, and Mel. I want to thank you for what you're doing and for enlightening me and being patient with me because everything I have learned about what goes on in a lot of these Amish communities, I've learned in the last two weeks. 
And I promise you this, I'm going to make a prediction here that someday both of you are going to get a knock on your door or a phone call contacted by Daisy or a Daisy who's going to say the work you did put them in such a wonderful place compared to where they were. So know that day is coming. Keep pounding that as hard as you can. Secondly, uh, we are in the middle of putting together a town hall meeting virtual. I'll have much more information on that. Uh, and we're going to invite anybody and everybody in Webster County, especially those who are in office of uh, power, uh, to share their thoughts on this and help move this in a positive direction. Because what's going on now, not acceptable. Just not acceptable. So stay tuned for that. We've put together some incredible experts from around the nation to help address that. Terrific. And one closing thought here with Lonnie. Do you think it's possible that finally there will be juvenile charges um, brought against the two younger brothers? Because we asked the prosecutor about that and he said, well, first of all, it's all confidential. So I couldn't tell you even if I knew, but that happens in the juvenile courts and I'm, I'm not part of that legal system. So Lonnie, what do you think here? I think if there's any chance of it happening, it will be because of the voices that are being heard right now. Um, I truly believe that because I think that they had already essentially concluded that part of the case and kind of written it off. Um, but I think that the continued swell of voices talking about this and, and letting them know that that's not acceptable, that's the chance you have of something happening. Excellent. And I want to let everyone know, in all fairness, that we reached out to Webster County Prosecutor Ben Berkstresser to come on this program and help us understand what happened here and what his thought process was. He declined to be on the program, but he did send us this comment. And, and in all fairness, we, we've got to let him have his say. And he said, quote, I sought revocation of the probation because their probationers had violated their probation terms in a fundamental way, which is by having contact with the victim, by moving back into the residence with her. He also told us that, you know, we asked him, well, what do you think about uh, the calls for your resignation and the judge's resignation and, and all of the protesters? And he said, you know, it's their First Amendment right so um, in that sense, he supports you, but obviously I'm sure he wants to keep his job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also we invited the Missouri Department of Social Services on the program. They declined, but Lonnie read their statement. So we have tried to ask the questions, you know, alongside you. Thank you so much for joining us. Please, you watching and listening, don't go away because now we've got two extraordinary women coming up. Well, thank you so thank much for you having so us. Much. Thank you, everyone. You too. So the case we've been talking about in Seymour, Missouri, is really not the first of its kind in the Amish community. It may be the first time a lot of us are hearing about this kind of sexual abuse, but apparently this has been going on in other states for some time. And our next two guests can really speak to this. Audrey Kaufman and Misty Griffin were Amish, and they left the community after suffering terrible abuse. It has not been easy for them. And each one of them is trying to find justice in their own way. We welcome you to the program, Misty and Audrey. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. We, we've got so much to ask you about. We're going to give you um, give everyone a, a little bit of background about each of you so then we can have a, a deeper conversation with Lonnie, our former prosecutor. So Audrey Kaufman is joining us from Pennsylvania, and you are a former uh, member of the Amish community. Your ex-husband, who is the father of your children, is sitting in a jail today 
charged with 36 counts of raping and sexually abusing three of your children. He is awaiting trial. That should happen soon. First, I want to ask you, Audrey, how are your children doing? Well, considering where we were two years ago and where we are today, we're doing well. Um, considering everything they've been through, they're fantastic. My kids are troopers, but it has done deep, deep damage that they're going to have to untangle for the rest of their lives. Now, I just want to, and I'm going to talk more with you, but I wanted to set up your story so people can follow along. Uh, Misty, um, Misty's story is very interesting. She, she was hired by a prominent Amish bishop and... You know, you were hired to be the maid and the nanny to his seven children, all under the age of 12, and you thought that would be a good and safe place to be, right? The bishop's house, a very prominent person in the community. Misty says that the bishop not only raped her, but his own children. Misty says that after an incredibly violent attack in 2005, she ran to the police, filed a report of rape, but nothing happened. Ultimately, the bishop's own daughter reported him to the police, and he now sits in a prison convicted of sexual assault. So a little bit of justice there. Now, Misty left the Amish, and she wrote a book about her experiences. She changed all the names and locations, and she has asked us. She said she would gladly help and participate in this program, but she didn't want to use real names, and she didn't want to use real locations um, because Misty said that when she wrote her book, it wasn't about revenge or anything like that. It was just about speaking truth. Misty's book, Tears of the Silenced, an Amish true crime memoir of childhood sex abuse, brutal betrayal, and ultimate survival. Wow, Misty. It's like you've been through everything. You've been through everything. Um, yes, I, I just want to make one correction. Um, I, I didn't file a charge of rape against the bishop, um, partly because during the attack, I, I blacked out. I couldn't remember exactly what happened, um, but I did file a sexual assault charge against him. I see. Uh, and so I make that the correction. Um, and, and you had been repeatedly assaulted by him? Yes, pretty much on a daily basis for the six and a half months I lived with them. I, 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 this is the part I think a lot of people are not going to understand. The fact that, Misty, you went to the police and nothing was done. Audrey, you also went to the police in, in, a, in a different community and initially nothing was done. But when you finally called the police in Pennsylvania, and Lonnie, I want to ask you about this after Misty comments, is the, the, the state troopers in Pennsylvania took this seriously. What, why is it that certain jurisdictions where the Amish live, that law enforcement takes these allegations seriously, like in Audrey's case, because the ex-husband is sitting in prison, is sitting in jail right now, and others don't? C can you explain that, Audrey? Well, first of all, I'd like to make a quick correction. Of course. He's not in jail. His dad bailed him out. His uh -huh. dad is the bishop. <laughs> he bailed him out a day and a half after he had been arrested, and his daddy's also paying his attorney. So that adds a little twist there. Sorry to hear that, but that is his legal right. That is his legal right. Yeah. Thank you for the correction. So what do you make of this, Audrey? It, share with us the experience you had with the Pennsylvania authorities versus other jurisdictions, because you're not done. Your you, ex-husband's brother, the children's uncle, also sexually assaulted them, yet you cannot get any justice. What is it in Kentucky? Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Share with us the I'm, process. I'm not exactly sure why. I, I, I've asked a lot of questions. Um, I've made a lot of phone calls. The state police and all the officials here in Pennsylvania have been phenomenal. Like they stepped up to the plate. They protected us every time we were harassed. They were on my doorstep within minutes. Like they have filed, they filed harassment charges against his father for continually harassing me. I mean, they have followed through and done so well. They've supported me and the protective protective order I got on top of the criminal charges. And whereas in Kentucky, partly due to the fact that he's a minor and the way Kentucky laws are, but mostly due to the fact that the DA who oversees that county just doesn't care. Um, he, we have written, um, admit, I mean, he admitted in written form that in two different letters, what he did and they still haven't acted, they've done nothing. And so what makes the difference? I'm not sure. Uh, one thing that I have seen in not only our case, but in others is that they too often, it has to do with finances and the Amish people are often good carpenters. They're good electricians. They're good plumbers. They're stable members of the community. They're seen as people who are well-respected and don't cause any trouble. And I've heard that repeatedly in Kentucky. Oh, the Coffin family would never do something like this. And I see this in a lot of different cases. They're so highly respected. People refuse to acknowledge. They, they choose denial. And the way it would hurt them economically, it's not worth messing with it. Lonnie, can you make any sense of this? Well, a couple things. One, um, you know, we've been talking about the Amish community, and I think that people generally still have this, I think the way you put it, Audrey, is a romanticized view of who the Amish are. You know, we think they're peaceful and hardworking and loving and kind. And so to hear that there's this, you know, current of abuse going on, it's hard for a lot of people to believe that. Um, but the second thing is, I think historically law enforcement, when it comes to religious groups, they have this um, sort of conflict of, well, we need to respect their right to their religious practices, right? So that, that was why it was so hard to finally break into the polygamous sex because you know, they knew that there was all this polygamy going on. They were trying to balance well, what's their religious right versus what the law is. And then finally, they started doing something about it as far as law enforcement. In this case, too, it might be, well, we don't want to tread on, you know, this religious community's feet. And it's also interesting in, in both of your cases, Misty, your uh, abuser was the bishop. And I understand the bishop's like the leader, right? And then... Yes. Audrey, your ex-husband's dad, I think you said, was also the bishop? Yes. So you're talking about the leadership of these religious communities that are, they're, you know, with a great standing respect. Um, and, and law enforcement may, some of them anyways, may have an issue about wanting to not upset that. It, it doesn't make sense, especially in this day and age when we understand so much about sexual abuse and with Me Too and with, in your cases, you know, hard evidence is, as far as proving the cases. but. That's, that might be historically what's been an issue. Misty, can you share with us how women and girls are treated in the Amish community from your experiences and the level of sexual abuse, how prevalent it is? Uh, yes. Um, if I could make a comment just on what... Um, sorry. Lonnie. 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 Sorry, Lonnie was saying. 
Um, just to follow up with that, um, I can tell you from experience when I went to the police, they specifically told me that um, after I told them what had happened, they specifically told me that they had to be very careful not to trample on the religious rights of the Amish community. They told it to me maybe three or four times. It's almost mm -hmm. like they weren't listening to what I was saying to them because they seemed preoccupied. I mean, the detective that was talking to me, he was very preoccupied. And, you know, when I would ask them, well, what are you going to do? Um, can you do something? You know, you need to help these children. You know, I wasn't going for myself. I was going to help the seven children still in the home. And he told me a minimum of three times, uh, we have to be very careful that we don't trample on the religious rights of this Amish community. And um, that seemed to be their their main priority at the time. I was not the absolutely not the priority. Um, so it's, it's very true that... Um, the main focus is pretty much religious rights of the community. Wow. That's complicated. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think that religious freedom permits you to um, violate the law and commit crimes. And, and I haven't gone to law school, but I, I do believe that is our basic law. You're absolutely right about that, Anna. That's correct. Okay. All right. I'm, even though it may not feel like that's what happens in reality. So, so Misty, Share with me, how are women treated? For example, what do you think, do you think this little girl who, you know, we're calling Daisy, do, how do you think she's being treated? Is she getting help and support in the community now because of what happened to her? Well, I mean, obviously nobody really knows what's happening with her because nobody has access to her. Um, the community is like sheltering her, you know, within the community. So nobody really knows, but from experience, from you know, my own case, living in among the Amish and hearing probably at least a hundred other stories, um, it's most likely that she is being blamed for her brothers being sent to prison. Um, you know, in my case, when I was among the Amish, there was a 14-year-old girl who was molested by a man in his 50s. And instead of getting on to the man for molesting her, the girl for... The three and a half years I was among the Amish, the girl was often whispered about and, you know, people would comment that she was too friendly, that it was her fault uh, that she got molested because she was just a really friendly, bubbly girl. And she knew that the people were, you know, whispering like this about her. And, um, you know, sometimes after church, she would get a little overexcited and start talking and laughing with the other girls. And the women would like immediately look at her and she would have to be quiet because, like, oh, she's getting too friendly and loud again, um, you know. So it, it really damaged her. Um, you know, it was really damaging to her. And Audrey, I, I'm sorry. Please go ahead. No, I, I just say I believe in Daisy's case, um, the Amish girl, most likely she's getting also that treatment that somehow it had to have been her fault because that's just how the Amish view these cases. I, I'm stunned by that. Audrey, has it been your experience that the victim is actually the problem, not, not the person who, who did the assault or the attacking? Yes, that's been my experience as well, not only in my children's situations, but in my own personal situation as a 17-year-old. And I, in the work that I do, I see it on a daily basis, and I, it's the thread carries through community after community after community. Can you elaborate on that? Can you explain to me what, what's, what's the thought process? What's the mentality? Why do they say it's your fault that your brothers are in prison? 
they don't hold the men responsible. Um, it's a culture where the women are shamed and they're told that somehow it, they were either immodest or they were too loud or they were, it was, it, there's some reason that they enticed the men to do what they did and make the choices that they made. How prevalent is it to have men sexually abusing children? And, and explain to me the mindset in conversations with both of you. It's almost as if you're telling me they don't know it's wrong. Who wants to tackle that, Audrey or, or Misty? Um, Aud- well, Misty? I, I would say that, um, of course, they know it's wrong. I mean, anybody with basic sense, I think knows it's wrong, but um, it's sort of normalized, I believe, among the Amish. So it's not exactly that they probably don't know that they're doing something wrong, but it's it's just sort of normal behavior. I mean, when I, when I was Amish, um, I would witness uh, brothers molesting their sisters just right out in the open. Um, it was very common in my community. Um, the family that I lived with, the 17-year-old brother, he would molest the 14-year-old sister just right out in the kitchen. He would come up behind her and be like tickling her, but in inappropriate places. Um, and then he would like trap her on the stairs and, um, you know, tickle her supposedly. And, you know, the mom was there. She never reprimanded him. She, the only thing she would ever do is tell the girl to get back to work. Like, you know, Ella, go what, get back to washing the dishes. Or Ella, you're supposed to be collecting the eggs. But she never said, you know... Eli, what are you doing? You know, that is inappropriate. Um, That was never the case. And I witnessed it, you know, after church, you know, some of the older, like 10, 11 year old boys tickling the younger girls. Um, So it, it, it's never reprimanded by the parents. And that's one thing I don't quite understand. Um, There's no reprimand or consequences for it. And then those boys, you know, they grew up to be men and, you know, they got away with it when they were boys. So, you know, they're, going to get away with it when they're men and the other men in the community are not going to hold them responsible. Uh, So, you know, there just really needs to be some sort of sex education or something among the, I'm sorry, um, sex education among the Amish to, you know, teach them that, you know, you can say no, and this is inappropriate behavior. Um, But, you know, how would you start something like that because the Amish are not going to go for it. Um, they're set in their ways and they believe their ways are right. So, Audrey, yeah. you said to me that when you were having a lot of problems with your husband and his father was the bishop, that they sent your ex-husband away several times for some kind of behavioral modification. Can you tell us what that's about? I believe that's how the Amish take care of these problems. It's pretty, it's pretty common. If you can't be dealt with by, you know, church discipline, um, then they send them away to various types of programs. Um, in our case, uh, they, he was sent to Pure Life Ministries in Kentucky. Um, the Amish have different programs. That program itself was not sponsored and run by plain people. But there are a lot of different facilities that are run by the plain people for these types of men. Um, now, there again, I like the way you worded it, their behavior modification programs, they don't address the root of the issue. And what I say often is the Amish have a serious domestic violence problem, and they do not know how to address it. And the fact that the culture is so patriarchal, and the women have no voice leaves no space for change. So you could tell a child all day long that they have a voice and that they're allowed to use it. 
but that means nothing in the space of their culture. I want to ask both of you, this is very interesting to me, that the prosecutor in the Seymour case, in Daisy's case, said, well, one of the reasons that I, you know, initially let them off in the sweetheart deal is because the Amish community had already severely punished them, and therefore that is why, you know, I I didn't initially think they needed to go to prison. Audrey, what do you think? Well, their their idea of severe punishment... um, is humorous at best. Um, usually their form of severe punishment is excommunication for six to 10 weeks, uh, which means they don't eat the same table with the ch- other church members. So even a father would sit at a separate table in his home. They wouldn't sleep in the same bed. He wouldn't sleep in the same bed at his wife. He wouldn't be greeted with the holy kiss at church. He wouldn't participate in communion. And he would have to make a you know an apology before he would be taken back and the church would take a vote. So if you consider that severe punishment, I, I, I think the most severe part about it would just simply be the shame of it. But like Misty said, it's so normalized in the culture that it's really no big deal. Yeah. Lonnie, what do you think? You know, the fact that the, the brothers admitted in the probation hearing last week in which they ultimately were sent behind bars, that... Oh, um, you know, oh, we didn't realize we weren't supposed to be with our little sister, you know, the one that we raped. Oh, really? Uh, that's not, uh, I know I signed it, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know the terms. Oh, and the, oh, one more thing, Lonnie. As part of their, um, as part of the probation, they were each supposed to write a letter of apology to the Amish community. And they each, the judge said, you each wrote the same letter, just different signatures. Yeah. Once again, right? Proving what here, Lonnie? That they never got it. Right. And it's interesting. Here's what they wrote, part of the quote. It says, I confess to having had several inter- several sexual intercourses with blank under 14 years of age. I do regret and I'm sorry for having done any such sins. I mean, that, that to me is very clear that somebody fed them what to say and what to write. I have a question about... Um, you know, what is the education as far as reading and writing? Um, because I do think, I don't think that these guys got it. One, um, because I think if this, the Amish community, all they do is, you know, shun them for six weeks, they really don't understand consequences, right? So you can tell them that they have all these, all these consequences, but they're not going to believe it until it actually happens to them, until they actually were walked into that prison and the gate shut. That's the first time they probably realized that what? There's something you know, to, to consequences to, to my actions. But the other thing is, I I really wonder, do they, you know, intellectually, are they taught about these things? Are they taught to read and write to a, to a level where they could understand this? And I guess my question is two parts, you know, is it, is it part lack of education? Is it part of just the, the way they're socialized or is it a combination of both? Um, I would say it's a combination of both. Um, From my experience, you know, I I thought that the girls sort of did better in school, usually Amish girls. Um, they seem to get better grades, pay more attention. Um, but I noticed that a lot of times if you didn't want to pay attention in school, you really weren't made to all that much, at least in my community. Um, a lot of the, the boys were not that well educated. You know, um, sometimes boys require just a little bit more attention to make them focus on you know, school has not all of them, but some and, you know, some of the girls, too. But um, 
a lot of the boys in my community were very undereducated. You know, they say that they went to the eighth grade, but, um, you know, they just usually would just keep them going from grade to grade without, you know, really making sure that they got it and they passed it. And, you know, some of them even struggled to read. So, um, but also it's socialization and not knowing how the outside world works. I mean, there's a good chance that these boys barely even got the concept of what prison is. I mean, they're, they're quite young still. So, excuse me. So um, they probably understood, you know, a vague idea of what prison is, but um, most likely didn't really understand what prison is. I don't think. Can I ask you about Daisy? Audrey, can you tell us, you know, one of the discussions that we're having here and the question is, what happens to this girl? Should she be removed from the home as would happen with probably any other case of rape and incest where there's also a baby that's born? If she's removed from the home, how how difficult do you think that would be for this girl to if she's removed from an Amish family into a regular family or or is it best to supervise her and help the family what what's the solution here Audrey because I don't know what's best for her given where she has been brought up I think personally I think in Daisy's case in the setting and the Amish setting that specific culture that she's in uh, that's a good question Removing her and placing her into a so-called English home would definitely be a huge adjustment and traumatic, although in a loving, healthy environment, I think it would be a far better choice than sending her home to her abusers. I mean, as we all understand, there's two minor sons, and as far as I know, they've not been removed from the home. So she's been put back with her abusers, and she's been put back with parents who have not protected her from the get-go. Her child's been taken from her. And so I don't see any way that that environment could be healthy, supervised or unsupervised, because you cannot supervise a situation like that enough to keep a child safe. It's not possible. You said her baby was taken from her. What do you mean by that? From what I understand, the grandparents are raising the baby. And like I said, I don't know how the specific case is, but very often in these cases, the baby is taken from the mother as when they're very young and placed with an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, someone outside the immediate family. And in a lot of cases, these babies grow up and don't even know who their real parent is. They have no idea. They were never told. There's multiple stories that I could share in a brief span of time where there's generations of this that has happened. It's very common. Wow. Lonnie, what do you make of that? It's shocking. So they Mm -hmm. keep the baby in the Amish community, but they take it away from the mother. Yes. Well, that just shows you how accepted this lifestyle. I mean, it's become a lifestyle essentially is because they actually know what to do when there's a baby born from incest. They just, they, it's the level of this is so eye opening. I I think it's so important to understand it. Misty, what do you think is going on uh, with that girl? Do, do you think it would be too jarring to remove her from the home? And maybe that's why child services, are, you know, that when they look at the, t- the totality of a child who has been assaulted is damaged and what is best for her, do you think that she should be removed from the Amish community or maybe rehomed with another Amish family somewhere else? Uh, what is the best answer for her? Unfortunately, like Audrey said, that's a good question, but 
Personally, um, she I believe that she's young enough that she could be taken out of the home and placed with an outside family. Um, you know, she's 13 years old. Uh, you know, children, teenagers, they learn to adjust. But I believe until she is taken out of the home and taken out of that environment, um, you will never really find out her true story and what really happened to her. Uh, we have no idea if these four boys are her only abusers or if there's other children being abused by the minors or by other family members. Um, you know, we don't know that. If she were to be taken out of the home and put somewhere safe on the outside of the Amish community and, you know, after maybe a couple of weeks, she feels comfortable. She can talk to, you know, a detective or a social worker. She could tell her story and what's really actually happening. But while she's inside the community, you are never going to find that out because she's being told what to say. Whatever she has said so far is what she has been told to say. And most likely on a daily basis, she is being at least emotionally traumatized, you know, being told it's her fault. Look, your brothers are in prison. Look what you did. You know, you told the this to the doctor and now look what happened. You know, you can never fix this. And because of you, your brothers are going to hell. I mean, that's very likely. Uh, what she's being told. Oh my God. I, I have a question, Lonnie. In cases like this, when you were a prosecutor, if there was a child victim, would there be a court appointed um, advocate or would she as a victim have a voice in the court and the court proceedings? Do you know what I'm saying? I, I know there's a term for it and I'm sorry, I don't know what it is. Well, yeah, a lot of it's a child advocate because she's 13 years old, you know, and and so there needs to be someone who works just directly with her, who she feels like is is her person, right, to represent her that she feels comfortable with. I would think that the prosecutor would have adamantly determined that that happened because they want to make sure that, I mean, the prosecutor is supposed to be representing the victim right? That's what we do. We represent the victim. And especially when you're talking about a 13 year old girl living in such a uh, unique environment, you want someone who they bond with, who they feel comfortable with, who they feel comfortable giving the whole story to, like Misty said. Um, and so I would think that it would be upon the prosecutor or the judge. I mean, the whole system essentially failed her by not making sure that she had someone who took the time to find out what was really going on and to make her feel safe and to ask her what's going to be the best for you. I know you're 13 years old, but you know, at least, at least have those conversations with her. Um, but if no one is bonding with her, then you're right. She, she's going home every day to her parents and that's, that's who's going to be influencing her and telling her what to say and not say and what to think and what to go along with. The same people who fail to protect her, fail to protect her. It's it's just shocking to me. Um, as, as we're winding down here, I want to get your thoughts on what's happening in Seymour as far as the, uh, you know, the just the, the regular folks who have come out and are protesting, demonstrating, writing letters, making calls. They're not even Amish, but they are outraged by what's happened. Audrey and Misty, do you believe that this is having any kind of a profound effect and is going to have a change we'll, we'll start with audrey i think it will and it's unfortunate that normal human beings 
that do normal human things and experience normal human emotions to this type of atrocity are looked at as heroes in a situation like this. It should be just normal human response. And I, I've seen it in other cases as well, that when the public is outraged and when they speak up and they protest and they send letters, things happen. And it's a crying shame in our day and age that it, ha that it has to come to that. But I'm so proud of them for doing that and for stepping in for Daisy. And I can say from our own personal experience, those people that have stepped into our stories and have advocated for us and, you know, been a voice it's huge and it's very healing for the victims. And I don't know how much Daisy will find out, but I just really hope that somehow she knows how many people are out there fighting for her, even though she can't use her own voice and fight for herself. Misty. Yeah, exactly what Audrey said, you know, that it's kind of strange that, you know, the outside people just being outraged by this, you know, that it's looked on as something of, you know, sort of heroism, you know, that they would care about a child that's Amish. But, you know, it's our duty as adults, as human beings to look out for all children, no matter, you know, what race, religion, you know, sexual orientation, whatever they are, you know, we're supposed to look out for them and be outraged if, you know, sexual abuse or any other kind of abuse is being covered up. So, you know, we're very thankful for the people of Seymour, you know, stepping in and raising awareness about this. You know, I highly doubt that the boys, the Amish boys would have went to prison if it hadn't been for the protests that they, they've been doing. So, um, you know, raising your voice and, you know, speaking out about injustice, you know, it, it does and it can make a difference. And also, we, we want to mention and congratulate Misty just had a baby last week. So quite a blessing. Congratulations. Thank you. He's yeah. super adorable. <laughs> of course he is. He's a baby. <laughs> well, yeah. ladies, thank you so much. Audrey Kaufman, Misty Griffin, thank you so much for being on this program, um, for opening your very difficult and painful stories to us it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Even before I met you on Zoom, um, we we spoke on the phone. And um, I, I really wish you a lot of success with the fights that you are still continuing to fight. And I know for you, Audrey, your family is going to court. And that's going to be, of course, continuing to be traumatic to your children. And I, I just, I'm, I, I, I hope that they get all the support that they need to get through this. Thank you both so much. We appreciate it. Thank you for it. having us. Thank you so much. Lonnie, all I can say is, wow. Wow. Yeah. Everyone's story, right? Amazing. And, and that they are doing so much to try and change it, to make it better, you know, for these victims that are continuing to live in this. But the strength and the courage was, you know, so admirable. And to be able to hear Audrey and Misty explain it from the inside is so important for us to be able to know, you know, what we're fighting, actually. Exactly. I think change is going to be very difficult in the Amish community, but my hope is that at least when the crimes are reported to the police, that the police and the prosecutors and the judges will take this more seriously and that it will be evenly distributed, the justice, because we see how in Pennsylvania they're taking the cases really seriously, but in Kentucky and in Missouri, it's a whole different approach to these yeah. crimes. Yeah. 
And the key is really for law enforcement and the judges and the prosecutors to just accept that sexual abuse is the same, whether it's done in an Amish community or out. It, it has to be treated the same under the law, especially for these young girls who are living with this every day. And there is no religious exemption to committing these crimes that means they can't be prosecuted. That is ridiculous. And that has to change. Yes. Yes. Well, Lonnie, thank you so much for guiding us through this legal entanglement and helping us understand what's going on. As always, it's such a pleasure. We also want to thank Lewis and Tiffany and Audrey and Misty for joining us. The conversation has been unbelievable. Uh, I, I do want to ask, you know, our, our listeners, our viewers, however you, you listen to the podcast or watch it, you all spoke out about this and your voices were very clear and loud, which is why we did this special podcast. I'd love to hear from you what you thought about this. I want to hear whether you want us to do more like these, more in-depth reaction podcasts to what's really happening in the world. And I mean, we, we peeled some of the layers back, Lonnie, I feel, where, where people got to see it's like what was happening and who went to the courtroom and, and why were they demonstrating and all the video and the pictures for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, those were provided to us by the activists in Seymour. So you have photos of the family, you have the demonstrators. I mean, these are just simple homemade signs. We're right. Yeah. Um, so I can't wait to hear everybody's um, thoughts on this. Lonnie, where can people reach you if they want to follow you and know what you're up to and, and, and just like all good things, Lonnie? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, but I do have a special that's going to be airing on December 6th on the Oxygen Network. It's called The Case Died With Her, and it's about a young woman who was uh, allegedly sexually abused by her high school track coach. It took her 18 years to break that terrible secret and what happened after that. Wow, that will be incredible because I just know how passionate you are. Thank you, Lonnie. Much success with that. And for all of you, we thank you for joining us. You can find all our content on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, however you consume your podcasts. You can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. We are a community, as I say, the crime family. We are 4.1 million strong. And those are a lot of voices. You know I read your comments. You can always find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. And until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.